You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. Today, I have the honor of introducing you to my friend, Diane, a powerhouse in the field of addiction for decades, a warrior of a woman who knows this family disease intimately from many perspectives. And she always maintains a willing heart of a teacher. And I'm sure some of that has to do with receiving the gifts other people in recovery shared with her and being willing to continue passing that on. So let's join Diane. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. I'm going to take my drink and wet my whistle because it does make a difference. And so, Diane, I am thrilled to have you. It's kind of weird to be in this situation because we're so used to being next to each other. I usually start with everyone I chat with and ask them who their qualifier is. And I'm aware of your story, so I'm going to try really hard to pretend I don't know it so that I ask the questions I think our audience would want to know. My qualifier, so I'm the mother of an addicted child. I'm also aware that you come from quite a history of addiction in your family. Are you willing to share a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I am Irish on my father's side. I'm Native American Ojibwe on my mother's side. And the uh, genetic predisposition as well as cultural predisposition pretty much had me screwed before I ever picked up my first drinking drug. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about this being a generational family disease, is that something you feel is accurate? Absolutely. And, you know, I've seen where it skips a generation or two, but I think that, and and I attribute the intergenerational addiction in my family to be a direct result of historical trauma in Indian country. And so with that, that issue, um, I think that's why we don't tend to skip generations. We just go from one to the next. I think for our audience, because I'm guessing there's a lot of people out there who don't have an understanding of what you just said, as sad as that is. So if you're willing to share a little bit about what you mean by the trauma and not skipping a generation, what's your experience with that? So historical trauma refers to um, the effects of colonization on indigenous people here in the Americas. And I mean, we've had hundreds and hundreds of years of uh, colonization and federal policies from the government that have gone every direction from extermination to removal, or especially with addiction, is that it was the boarding school period of colonization that really did the damage that it did in Indian country, because this was over a hundred years of forced um, boarding schools for 
kids. I mean, literally they came to reservations and kidnapped these kids or ripped them out of their parents' arms and sent them sometimes across the country mm-hmm. to these schools that were either paramilitary type or um, faith-based boarding schools. And so these kids were punished for speaking their language. Um, They had their hair cut. They weren't allowed even to talk with siblings if they had brothers and sisters that were in the same school. So that boarding school system very effectively changed the way Indigenous people lived. So for those years, because those kids that went to boarding schools, they lost the language, they lost the culture. They didn't learn, they didn't grow up hearing those stories or how uh, we parent children even. And then when those kids came home, many of them were broken and lost. And some of the abuses that happened to them in boarding schools, like sexual abuse and physical abuse, were brought back to the reservation. And they parented the way that they were parented in those boarding schools, which was basically none at all, but just a lot of of corporal punishment for them. I will admit, coming from Bermuda, limited exposure to Wisconsin tribes surrounding me. And again, uh, an exposure through the helping profession in Wisconsin began to have an appreciation for how much I didn't know and still don't. Um, The piece that baffles me is how the average student, because we've had a conversation, you and I, with two young people, my daughter and a friend, how little is still taught about the history of Native American people. How does that play into what you're describing as the trauma? Is it re-traumatizing? Well, it is because it's not acknowledgement of what happened. I mean, who doesn't want their true story to be validated, right? I mean, when we tie it into addiction, it's the same. Meeting people many times over who go to a family program and say out loud what they've been living and everyone in the room is nodding their head and they feel finally they've been validated for their experience. Is that something that you see within your community, the two come together? Is it hard for people of of your ancestry to find treatment that is caring for that aspect of their history? Well, it's it's gotten much better now. I think just with the way that treatment is done, um, I know <clears throat> there were many Native people who went to um, treatment during that time where the philosophy was we have to tear this person down, get in there, you know, just break down all of their defenses in order for them to get sober. And and you already had a population of people that were so broken. And when they went through that kind of rock'em sock'em approach, they were name called, they were shamed um, for some of their behaviors, especially the women. And so it was it was devastating because we told those people, treatment is going to help you. And 
that wasn't the case. It's gotten so much better now that there is a more client-centered approach and you have more and more Indigenous people getting into um, mental health and, and substance abuse counseling. So when those people go to those places, they see brown faces and it makes them comfortable. And there is so much more incorporation into um mental health and, and substance abuse work in indigenous communities that is cultural, that is um, healing, which is happening. And we see that all across uh, tribes across the United States is that healing from, from the devastation. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned your son as your qualifier. At what age did you have that first, oh boy, inkling, awareness? that there was a problem. At what age was he? Well, he started to research his disease when he was 16. And it's it's crazy because when that happened, I had been sober for 14 years myself and I had 10 years in this field as a substance abuse. And that denial was so deep. Like it just shut down that part of my brain that would ever even admit that it was getting as bad as it was it was it was getting people tried to tell me things and i would just say oh you know not my baby he's never even been around alcohol never in his home and then with the certain people that he was hanging out with that's like any other uh, parent with a child i defaulted to them you know if he just didn't hang around with those kids he wouldn't be getting in trouble and and he's driving for them because he doesn't want any of them to have a car accident i mean just the insanity of how this disease impacted me on the family side was amazing. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. So I want to go back in case someone didn't hear you. When your son started doing his research, you were sober how long? 14 years. So you were in your own recovery for addiction, mm-hmm. and you were also a person working in the field of chemical dependency. Yes. And I want to just, you know, put the fine point on that for all those people who don't have the wealth of experience personally in their own recovery journey, nor professionally as a clinical person, to see the humanity in that, that it doesn't matter when it's your loved one. It doesn't matter the book smarts. It doesn't matter the life experience. The disease still manipulates any one of us the same way. Absolutely. So at first, the denial, you know, looking at the friends as the problem, seeing what we want to see because we love someone and don't want to see the worst or the problems. Where did it go from there? Well, people that I trusted, even family members, would say, um, you know, Bucktail did this or Bucktail did that. That was my son's uh, nickname when he was growing up in my family. And so I started to do the questioning, you know, and, and ask him, and I don't know how many times repeatedly, repeatedly, I would ask him, are you high? Mm. Have you been drinking? And he would get so angry with me that of course it pushed me back and would shut me down. Uh, And so uh, that continued, but probably when he was in his early 20s, he started to have 
um, these uh, arrests and a couple of them were traffic stops. And then uh, one, he had a possession charge, I think when he was 21 or 22. And of course he told me that it was somebody else's and he didn't want them to get in trouble. That went on for a while until it was just, just this can't, this is it. And so when he was 20 years old, he actually stopped drinking and he went to treatment. He went to a, a Native American treatment program in Northern Minnesota. And that kind of planted that seed for him, but he, it, it, it took him almost dying to get there. It was in January and it was his birthdays in January. And he was at a party with friends and um, they were driving him home or driving them. There were several of them in the car and he started to get into a fight with one of the guys and they kind of just like dumped him out on the road and reservation roads are very rural. And this is like, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. And it was bitter cold, 20 to 20 something below zero with the wind chill. And um, so, and, and actually the person who found him was my uncle, was my uncle was driving and, and he saw him and he tried to get him in the car and he said, come on, Bucktail, let me give you a ride. And Mike said, no, 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 I'm okay. I'm okay. And then he just kept walking and walking and walking. And then he got cold and he said he just laid down because he was tired, which means he was dying. He was, you know, hypothermia was setting in. And then somebody else saw him on the side of the road and called the ambulance and took him to the hospital. But the, the, the God message in all of that was that part of my job at that time was to do on call for the county uh, substance abuse program. And I happened to be on call and was carrying the pager and got a call from the sheriff's department and said, um, you need to go to the hospital to do a consult. They just brought somebody in, which was very normal part of being on call. So I went to the hospital and I, it was sectioned off. The ERs are sectioned off by the curtains. And so um uh, that one of the nurses said he's in there and she pointed to this curtain and I started to walk towards that way and a nurse came out and she said you can't go in there and I said I'm on call the sheriff's department called me and she said it's your son Diane and I had, so I had no idea what the status was or you know what had happened to him even and so they um kept him in the hospital for the night. And the doctor actually told me that had he been out in the cold for a half hour or more, he wouldn't have survived, that he wouldn't have made it. And so for him, that really kind of was the turning point for him. It was kind of his aha moment. And so he went to treatment. And, um, and then after he went to treatment, he went to a Native American halfway house and he was there for about six months. And absolutely loved it and was staying sober. And that was kind of where it's that started Mike's journey in um, language and culture, because my aunt and uncle actually founded the halfway house that he went 
uh, too. And my uncle was one of his first language teachers. And so that kind of just flipped a switch for him. But then uh, he um, stopped drinking, but then went on the marijuana maintenance program. So those are two things I want to touch on because you've given us a lot. So going back to that moment, which I can't imagine as a parent, of being there and not being able to see your son and the impact that had on Mike as a turning point. One of the things we know happens for family members is playing the role of higher power for their kids, trying to manage everything. In that moment or around that moment, were you able to utilize the tools of Al-Anon to know that that was a terrifying thing to go through but a gift because it showed you the evidence that he had a higher power was that even on the radar at that point for you yeah absolutely and this was you know this was something that when I started to know this was getting to be a problem um, I mean every time he left I would just ask the God of my understanding to take care of him because that's all that I could do he never did a lot of the things that other kids did as they started to journey down that road, which always fed my denial. Like my sister had to sleep with her purse locked in her car and her keys under the pillow because her son would take the car and credit cards and money. And, and my son never did any of that. He went to school, he played basketball. So he had all of these things that that fed my denial that made me think this is, you know, he's, he's not that bad. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, it, again, it's just these people he's hanging around with, but I knew then when, when he was in the hospital, that this was, it was kind of like every bit of my denial was gone. And then it was fear and panic. And how do I keep him safe? You had the experience of your own recovery. You had the experience professionally of training. When did you know you needed a 12-step recovery for family members? So actually, it was my AA sponsor. And Mike was probably like 18 or 19. And it was it was getting to the point where it was consuming me. And I would kind of want to work that stuff out with my, my AA sponsor. And that wasn't appropriate. So she's the one that said, you need to go to family recovery. And I really pushed back against that. I said, no, I don't. I've been sober for so long. I know this disease. I don't need to go to Al-Anon. And then, you know, as I say um, all the time with this is that she was absolutely right because working through my son's addiction wasn't appropriate for me to do those in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to go where those family members had walked where I was walking so that I could say, I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't do this anymore. Was that how you got to the point of turning him over every time he left the house? Was that one of the things they taught you in that program? No, actually, I had I had started doing that before I went to Al-Anon. And I think just because of some of our cultural teachings is is that I know that when when there is something that's, you know, disturbing. I mean, I I know a way to take care of that. And I and and even just my own recovery with repeatedly turning things over. It just just he just got added to the list. And. You mentioned that the preoccupation had gotten so bad. 
Can you parallel your experience with your preoccupation with your own use to how preoccupied you became with your son when he was down his path? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and and he knows that I used to do this too. So when I started to want to um, check him out, you know, and see what he was doing, like I was with the job that I had uh, between the tribal substance abuse and the county substance abuse programs had done a lot of work with law enforcement. I mean, we had to do welfare checks. Um, they brought people in to the uh, hospitals for um, for us to do consults. So I knew all of them. I was asking them, you know, just kind of keep an eye out. And this is the license plate. And, and where do you see the car? And coming out of that and working in recovery, it's like, what was that? That me, that effort to control. And, and then they would tell me things like they saw him here, they saw him there. And, and then I would say something and he's like, how do you know all of this? And, I, and of course, then too, with, with uh, people in the schools, I told them my spies are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and they were working for me. <laughs> so you had a real life GPS tracker. Well, they the didn't people. have them back then. <laughs> right. So you had the people instead of the actual device. Yeah, we didn't have cell phones. Otherwise, you bet there would have been a Life 360 on it. So for me, I'm a recovering person and also a family member. And for me, the obsession and preoccupation with the person was no different than the preoccupation with food. Is that true for you? Do you relate to that? Absolutely. I mean, just, you know, when, when the door closed and he was out the door, it's just that anxiety and that stress. And especially after he had already had that near-death experience, it was that. And, and, and then he, you know, with switching to marijuana because nobody ever died of an overdose and it's, natural it's herb it's from mother earth you know every excuse looking back to he stopped playing basketball Mm. and he stopped doing some of the things that that were important to him and kind of you know gravitated towards those kids again that you know had the same behaviors that he did so the getting in trouble with alcohol seemed more debilitating or damaging at that point versus early days of the marijuana use. Right. So like any other drug at this point, did you see the progression and the consequences grow as a mother watching? Yeah, absolutely. The power of this disease never ceases to amaze me. Though Mike grew up in a sober home, he still developed the disease of addiction. Though Diane was in long-term recovery and a substance abuse counselor, she was manipulated by the disease as any other mother would be. This is an equal opportunity disease. Join us again next week where Diane goes further into her story of recovery through Al-Anon while her son found his way into recovery from substance abuse disorder. I want to thank my guests for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.